enjoy learning from our podcast guest? You may find our podcast friends at our various Mother Earth News Fairs. There you may visit their presentations and take a DIY project home from one of our many hands-on workshops and shop with over 300 vendors specializing in self-sufficiency and natural health. I and other members of the Mother Earth News staff enjoy visiting the fairs and meeting our readers, so keep an eye out for us and say hi. Because we consider you a friend, don't forget to use the link in the podcast for a friendly discount on your tickets. Find out more details and plan your trip to the fair at www.MotherEarthNewsFair.com. I look forward to seeing you there. Hello, friends. In this episode of Mother Earth News and Friends, our guests and I will discuss baking bread from no need to sourdough and flatbread to fluffy loaves. I'm Charlotte Brunin. Thanks for listening. We've already discussed gluten and nutritional grains in other episodes, so we've decided to dive in a bit deeper and discuss the art of bread making. Josh Wilder is the video producer and designer for Mother Earth News. Josh lives in southwestern Wisconsin, enjoys food, wooded nature trails, and creatures both large and small. Victoria Redhead Miller recently released her new book, From No Need to Sourdough, A Simpler Approach to Homemade Bread. It encapsulates her 40-year fascination with homemade bread. Victoria grew up in Seattle and now lives with her husband, David, on their off-grid farm in the Olympic Mountain foothills near Sequim, Washington. She writes blogs about homesteading and self-reliance and also speaks at events around the country. This is Mother Earth News. Sure. bread okay Let's. well congratulations on your book coming out thank you um do you want to tell us a little bit about no need to sourdough before we get the conversation started sure um this book it's actually changed from the original the original plan was it was going to be all about sourdough based breads and i've been very fortunate for the last year and a half i've been talking about bread at the mother earth news fair and getting feedback from the audiences um, and I really pay attention to the questions that I get and cause I don't want to waste anybody's time. I want to talk about what they want to, what they want to learn provided it's within my experience. And so at one point, um, I think it was, uh, t- it was two years ago we, we were at, oh no, it was last year. It was at last year when we were in Burlington, Vermont. Okay. I talked to Ingrid, the managing editor of new society publishers. And I said, you know what? I think we should take the book in a different direction because people are not, you know, they're, I thought that I was going to convince everybody. In retrospect, this seems kind of arrogant on my part. I really thought I was going to convince people that sourdough was so easy that you not only can do it, but you should. And mm-hmm. you know what I found out was that regardless of how easy I make it, not everybody wants to make sourdough. <laughs> and, and that's when I, I realized that really my motivation here is to encourage people to simply make bread. Okay. And so I realized that I was not considering the needs of uh, beginning bakers who really wanted to make bread, but for whatever reasons, were just intimidated by the idea of sourdough. And so I came up with this, um, with this idea of kind of dividing the whole bread making process into what I was just calling comfort zones. Mm -hmm. Um, And the funny thing was that after I reorganized the table of contents to include these comfort zones, what I discovered was this whole progression in the book completely mimics my own progression as a baker. Uh, For example, comfort, the first comfort zone in the book is no need yeast breads. So if you've never made bread before, I encourage people to start there. Okay. 
uh, the most simple basic thing. I actually didn't, that's the one thing that I did not start with because when I started making bread and this was, well, before you two were born, um, this, I was, I think in eighth grade and that was in the mid seventies. Um, and no need bread was not a thing then I did start with simple yeast breads Mm -hmm. and so the book kind of progresses through from the no need yeast bread to kneaded yeast bread to breads made with pre-ferments which is kind of a crossover between yeast bread and sourdough and then on to sourdough breads where you're actually making and maintaining uh, a sourdough starter and there's also um, quite a bit of information about gluten um, and a section on low gluten and no gluten baking as well. So as I said, my, the main motivation, the two motivations of the book, the main one is to encourage people to make their own bread. Mm-hmm. And the second one is to, uh, more minor motivation of it is to kind of challenge the notion that all bread is actually bad for us. Okay, which kind of reflects the conversation that we just had with Jill right? Um, somewhat on just trying to discuss healthy grains. Mm-hmm. And we talked a lot about ingredient alternatives mm-hmm. in grains in mm-hmm. the bread. So why don't we work through the different comfort zones a mm-hmm. little bit? Sure. And so starting with no need, what did you mean when you said no need was not a, not a thing? Well, that was long before books like... Um, artisan bread in five minutes a day um it was long before books like that mm-hmm. came out um and i just i learned to bake from my mother when i was okay. in eighth grade my mom learned to make bread gotcha. and i just learned by looking over her shoulder and she would you know she would let me help knead the bread sometimes or help me sh- let me help her shape it or that sort of thing and that's how i learned and so i i and mm-hmm. i was young and yeah i didn't i didn't know culturally um, so. do you know where no need like originated from or where it's big boom was at first? I don't know actually um I don't know the history of that I think there are probably some breads there that are made that way um Mm -hmm. and if you like we can go into um a little bit of what the what the principle of that is and why it works yeah I'd love um, to with bread um do you want me just to jump into that now then yeah okay um I guess to understand no need bread you need to understand what the what the point of kneading is in the first place the point of kneading is to exercise the gluten Okay. In the in the grain and to develop the gluten, um, so the bread will will rise, rise and ha- and it, it definitely affects the texture and the risability um, of the bread, which brings up the question of if you're not kneading the bread, you're making this no knead bread. How come that works? If you're not if you're supposed to knead it for the bread to the gluten to be developed and for that bread to rise, but then you don't knead it. How come that bread still it turns into bread? Mm-hmm. And the reason is because gluten comes from two precursor proteins that are in the wheat uh, called uh, gliadin and glutenin. Mm-hmm. And when, the, when that flour is dry, those precursor proteins are completely inert. They're just basically inactive. As soon as you add water or some kind of liquid to that flour, those two precursor proteins start linking up in this chain called the gluten chain and and the the gluten just starts developing before you've stirred anything or kneaded anything the gluten is developing Uh, so that in a nutshell is why it works Uh, you still stir it and stirring it is actually is actually exercising the gluten Mm -hmm. Um, it's just not exercising it to the extent or for the length of time that normal kneading would be you're normally just are stirring it for a few minutes mostly just to get all of the grain hydrated um, but, but then you will see if you, and this is what I say in the book, you stir that 
flour and water up and then go away and leave it sit for five or 10 minutes. And you come back, run that spoon through it again, and it's a whole lot stretchier than it was. Mm -hmm. And that's because that gluten is developing in there without you ever having needed it. So would you say that being needed, it, it rises maybe a little bit more because of the gluten being worked then? Well, um, I'm not sure if it rises more in the sense of the loaf is actually higher mm -hmm. in the pan. If it is, it's probably not very much difference. Okay. Um, it definitely does affect, affect the texture of the bread. Though the no-knead bread will have a slightly more open, loose texture. The kneaded bread will is definitely more kind of fine, a little finer grain uh, to it like that. I think it affects the texture more than the actual height of the finished bread. Okay. And then why would someone want to make no-knead bread? Is it specifically just because it's an easy place to start or are there certain things that people prefer it with? Well, um, I, th I, think that, I, I think it's just because it's easier. It's okay. easier and it takes less time. Um, most of the kneaded breads that I make, I'm kneading the bread for a total of, of 15 minutes. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's more than that. This, you can mix up the dough and have it be done in about five minutes. And it's really simple um, that way. Um, plus kneading kneading is another thing that for a lot of people just seems a little mysterious and ooh, I don't know if I can do that and I mean I'm 57 I have a little arthritis in my wrists and a little tendonitis in my elbows and I start feeling it after a while and mm -hmm. I because I like to knead my bread by hand and so there may be physical considerations okay that, that make it difficult as well um there's of course you can if you have a you know, a heavy duty mixer with a dough hook like a KitchenAid, you can mix it that way or knead it that way. But I like kneading it by hand. Um, but um, I think typically for most people, it's partly it's a little easier and it takes less time. Okay. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, in, in my house, like we do a lot of no knead breads and we've had sourdough starters that we've killed over and over again because we don't feed them. And, uh, um, but, and the no knead bread is great because especially in, in the, cold season uh, with soups and stews right with the crustier bread it's, mm -hmm. it's really great for those right okay so what's the next comfort level okay so the next the next step would be um uh would be kneaded breads and it's exactly the same only now you're kneading it right um, how long are you kneading it usually? um yeah um it varies a little bit depending on it depends a little bit on um what kind of grains you're using mm -hmm. um but and you know in general we're talking about wheat flour um, and most of the kneaded recipes that I use, most of them are about 15 minutes. Some okay. of them are between 12 and 15, but roughly about somewhere between 10 and 15 minutes. Well, and I definitely understand why your arms are getting tired. <laughs> that's a, that's uh, right. a good set. <laughs> well, one of the, one of the th little tricks that I've come up with, which actually it turns out benefits the dough as well as your body um, is to break up the kneading process. And what, what I do is, um, and this is what I teach other people to do, is to knead the, the dough for five minutes, then let it sit for 10, and then come back and do the second five minutes. Mm -hmm. And you will find that dough is a lot softer. Mm. The, the more you work that dough after about five or 10 minutes, it starts feeling much more stiff and it's harder to knead. Mm -hmm. And so it, yeah, you take a break, give the dough a break. It lets the gluten that you've just been working pretty hard. It lets the gluten relax for a mm -hmm. few minutes. And so when you come back, I promise you will find instantly, you will notice it's way softer and easier to knead. So I do it, knead for five, rest for 10, knead for five, rest for 10, and then knead the final five. 
The whole thing takes 35 minutes. Yes, it's a little longer, but I promise it's easier on you physically and it's and it actually results in better dough. Well, that's really yeah. great advice then. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so we kind of already discussed a little bit of the, the kneading just to talk about no knead. Mm-hmm. Um, so then what is pre-fermenting bread? Okay, so, uh, um, well, that it's, it's a bread made with a pre-ferment. Okay. Okay, um, and what that is, um, uh, this is a really great thing for people to do if you're interested in sourdough, but you're not quite ready to make the commitment of cultivating and maintaining a starter. Mm-hmm. This is used a lot in Italy and France with a lot of their artisan breads. Um, and in Italy, it's called a biga. It's called a poulish in France. What it is very much like a sourdough starter only it's made with a little bit of commercial yeast uh, and you only make it about 12 to 15 hours before you're going to make your bread so what it really uh, really all it is is you take some flour some water a little bit of commercial yeast mix that all up and let it ferment at room temperature or you can put it in the fridge slow it down if you want to use it two or three days later uh, and then use that to mix up your dough. And it is amazing how much flavor that adds to bread. I was completely skeptical about this when I first tried it, and this was a few years back. Um, my husband wanted, um, he wanted me to make some hot dog buns or something because he was just so frustrated that these, what he thought were really hip, expensive, organic hot dog buns that he, he bought they just they molded about a day after he brought them home mm-hmm. and uh and so he's he was just he was really fed up because he'd wasted all that money on these fancy oh. buns and so he asked me if i could make some hot dog buns and i didn't know what i was doing <laughs> but i just looked through this book and i found this recipe for uh, ciabatta rolls and i thought huh well instead of making it into a little roll i can just make it into a roll like this and you know a little longer thing that i can use for a, for a hot dog and this involved making this biga, this pre-ferment, which I had never done before. Mm-hmm. And I made the biga the night before, and next morning mixed up the dough. And and this was 100% white flour. This was and and David thought he was not going to like it because he's really kind of snobby about bread. He doesn't like all white bread. But even he said he couldn't believe how much flavor there was uh, in this. And so they they use it a lot in Italy. Uh, for pizza and all sorts of breads there because an awful lot of the bread in Italy uh, through most of Italy is all white and pasta as well and so they use this to uh, to both add flavor and it also extends the shelf life okay um, of the bread Um, so that's all a pre-ferment is there's various different kinds um, of that Um, some people at least in this country a lot of people might be familiar with the sponge method Mm-hmm. of making bread that's another form of pre-ferment and that in a sponge method you're basically taking all of the water in your bread recipe and about probably about half of the flour uh, half of the total flour mixing that all up and letting that ferment for some period of time before you then add the rest of the flour and the salt and, and yeast and mix up the rest of your dough um, and so a lot of people are familiar with that that's that's a pre-ferment Okay. So I, I just, I had that in there as kind of a stepping stone to kind of familiarize people with some of the benefits of using a sourdough starter without the big scary commitment mm-hmm. thing. Cause that's normally what people shy away from. Sure. Get them yeah. used to the idea of fermentation. Right. Exactly. Okay. Um, 
so then sourdough is that next Mm -hmm. all right yeah um so uh sourdough um and when i say sourdough um a lot of people think that sourdough is a flavor of bread um when i say sourdough i mean bread that has been raised with a sourdough starter which is inoculated with wild yeast and there's no commercial yeast in it at all that's what i mean by a sourdough bread i have seen in the course of researching the book i have read a lot of books about bread um i was visiting a friend in maine about a year and a half ago and pulled a book off her shelf called sourdough cookery and it was from the late 70s and the first chapter was on starters and i tell you if that was the first thing i ever looked at about sourdough i would have been too scared to try it just seemed impossibly complicated. They wanted you to feed the thing four times a day at precise intervals, like every <laughs> you know every six hours or something. And then you were supposed to, and they had you adding sugar, which is completely unnecessary and and actually is counterproductive in terms of the flavor of the bread. They had you adding salt, which you really don't want to do because salt inhibits fermentation and just had all these rules. And, you know, who would do that? It's way too complicated. And so... Um, the method that I've come up with that works really well for me only involves feeding that thing once a week. I refresh it once a week when, I'm, when I bake bread, and that's it. And it lasts really well. But basically, the, the sourdough starter, um, the, the wild yeast that inoculates it, the wild yeast is everywhere. Okay. I imagine because I've been making sourdough bread in my kitchen for a number of years now, it's probably, if you could look at it, that kitchen under a microscope, you, it would be crawling with wild yeast. Um, but it's on the grain, it's in the air, it's all over the place. Uh, and so a lot of people ask me, don't I have to add yeast to get this started? And no, you don't. Uh, and so all my starter is is flour and water, and that's all. I like to add a little bit of whole wheat flour to it. Um, whole wheat flour, because it has the bran and germ in it, has more minerals in it that and they're they're minerals that the yeast wild yeast really like uh and i add a little bit of when i'm just this is just when i'm starting it out i add a little bit of rye flour to it because rye ferments very quickly Mm. and that just kind of helps get the whole process going faster which is always encouraging Mm -hmm. you know it's nice to see something actually happening in that thing after a day or two instead of waiting for a week And then if you don't see anything going on, you tend to get discouraged and think you did something wrong. So if you add a little bit of rye flour in there, it helps move it along. But so I wanted to come up with something that was going to be really low maintenance and not so intimidating. From No Need to Sourdough, create delicious, healthy breads in your own kitchen, no experience required. With From No Need to Sourdough, author Victoria Redhead Miller blends her own journey toward self-reliance with her fascination for traditional homesteading skills and love of good food. From making simple yeast breads to learning how to bake a variety of sourdough-based breads, Miller's curiosity and fearlessness comes together to share with readers a simpler approach to the pleasures of baking bread. To get your own copy of From No Need to Sourdough, please follow the link in our show notes to get a discounted copy. And now back to our discussion with Victoria Miller and Josh Wilder. So what are some things that can go wrong with sourdough? Josh, you mentioned that you're murdering yours. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's just, uh, <laughs> it's basically intentions that uh, don't go as planned. I mean, you, I mean, I would intend, I intended to bake bread every week, but then that just wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. And when you don't do the baking, then you don't remember to feed it. And right. Uh, 
Yeah, and the, yeah, and I've done that too. And sometimes when I'm traveling a lot, um, I'm not baking as much. And um, but it's important also to know that once your starter is cultivated, you really got to keep it in the fridge. That slows down the fermentation process also, um, and 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 enables you to re- be refreshing it less often as well. Um, but I, I've had times when I I've it's gone two or three weeks between me feeding it and I've never had a catastrophe with it. I've had the same starter going for uh, just over 10 years now mm-hmm. and you know and I've neglected it a few times and it it's still going. Hmm. Um, one thing that you can do and I really encourage people to do this if you're not planning to bake very often or if you're going away for a month or you're just busy and don't think you're going to bake for a while just freeze your starter okay you can put it in the freezer um and then um it does not kill the yeast the yeast just goes dormant in the cold and then take it out when you're ready probably at least a couple of days before you're planning to bake give the yeast a little time to wake up and as soon as it thaws out add a little water and flour to it to feed it and after about two or three days it should be good to go is there anything else that can go wrong with a sourdough starter yeah rancid Um, or moldy or anything like that well what happens with starter um and a good example is my husband's friend tony who's actually a really good cook but i've given him i've stopped giving him my sourdough starter because he's asked for it two or three times and every single time after about a month he calls me up and he says yeah you know that that starter you know i used that starter for a while and then it went bad and i said tony you left it out on the counter didn't you and yeah, oh yeah, well, I left it on the counter. I said, Tony, you got to put the thing in the refrigerator. It was because what happens is at the warmer temperatures, as that sourdough ferments, and it's constantly fermenting because what's happening in the fermentation process is the yeast in there is consuming sugar in the form of carbohydrates in the grain. And in the process, it's creating both alcohol and carbon dioxide. Eventually, if you don't feed it uh, and it keeps on fermenting like that, the, the acidity level will build up in there. The, there's two things going on. There's the yeast and there's lactobacillus bacteria. And so the more time that goes on, and this process just happens faster when it's out at room temperature, um, so the acidity builds up faster. Eventually, the acidity can build up to the point where it just kills the remaining yeast in there, and then you'll have to start over. If you see, and I've had this happen a few times, if you see a layer of liquid floating on top of your starter, that's kind of grayish looking, but it still smells okay, then it's fine. You just, I've had a, I've, I have that happen if my starter sits in the fridge without being refreshed for two or three weeks, I'll see a little bit of that liquid floating on top. It's fine, you just have to stir it back in, add a little bit of flour and water to it to feed it, and it's fine. If it's more like black or if some fuzzy looking mold is starting to grow on it, I would definitely pitch it and start over. At that point, you're, you're likely to find that the acid has built up to the point where the gluten in the wheat has broken down. If you run a spoon through it, it feels like it's kind of falling apart in clumps, that kind of thing. That means the gluten has broken down because the acidity level has gotten way too high. Mm-hmm. And you just start over. So speaking of that, um, in a previous podcast we did, we talked about um, people who are sensitive to gluten mm-hmm. sometimes being able to eat sourdough. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is behind that? Well, there's a lot of interesting research going on about that, um, both in Italy and in Australia um, these days. And I've read a lot of research papers in the course of working on the book. And um, 
basically what they found, and nobody is quite ready to commit themselves to this and say, we're absolutely sure. They all say we need more study. Most of these studies are with maybe 20 or 30 people. They're fairly small. Um, but the results are really encouraging. What they've, in a nutshell, what they have found is that breads that have been fermented um, for where the bread dough is fermented for at least 12 hours and sometimes up to 24 hours before it's baked um, somehow there and nobody really knows what the mechanics of this process are that cause this but what they found is that somehow or other the lactobacillus they believe it's a lactobacillus bacteria in it that somehow essentially inactivates the gluten uh, in the bread mm-hmm. to the point where people even with celiac disease can tolerate it without any measurable reaction in their gut. That's pretty much what they are saying mm-hmm. is that, and again, this is when we say sourdough, we mean bread that is that is uh, being leavened with a sourdough starter with wild yeast and okay. this is not true of commercial yeast. Uh, so that's what's going on there. So, uh, and what of sprouted grains? Kind of the same question. I've heard a similar thing that if sprouting grains can um, help reduce the sensitivity to gluten in people that eat it or make bread with it? Yeah, I've heard that too. And, um, I'm not quite sure what I think of that. Okay. Um, and I, and I've read some research on that, um, as well. I think the theory is that what happens is when you sprout a grain, that is you soak it in water and then you drain the water off and you let it sprout just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it, in the natural sprouting process of seeds, like when you plant a seed in the ground and it gets wet and it stays wet for a little while and it sprouts, there's an enzyme reaction that happens in there with the, this amylase enzyme um, that converts some of the starch in that seed to sugar and that's to feed the growing plant. And it doesn't happen until that seed is soaked in water. Otherwise, the seed's basically inert. So I think the idea is that this sprouting process, somehow the amylase enzyme activity there works on the gluten proteins in it. And I'm not quite sure what the deal is there, if it actually inactivates the gluten or not. Some people think it does. Other people don't. So I'm not really sure about that. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there anything else that you wanted to add from your book? Um, as I said, there's a there's a whole section on low gluten and no gluten baking, and I'll just mention the low gluten baking for a minute here because this is something that I have never seen it in all the books I've ever read about bread. I've never seen this mentioned at all. Everything seems to be it's all wheat bread or it's completely non gluten mm-hmm. or gluten free bread, and this is kind of a middle of the road thing. That idea that I had um, for people who think they might be sensitive to gluten, but aren't really sure. Um, The suggestion is to lower your gluten intake and kind of see what happens. There's different ways you can do that. One is, of course, you can just simply reduce the portion size. Eat half a sandwich instead of a whole sandwich or eat one piece of pizza instead of two, that kind of thing. Because some some of the things that wheat and gluten, some of the reactions that we have in our gut Um, definitely have to do with how much we eat at one time. Uh, So that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is to substitute some of the grains in your bread, as we were talking about a little bit with Jill earlier, um, substituting some of the grains, uh, some of the wheat for a a gluten-free grain. And one of the things I've had a lot of good results with is most of the flour in the bread is gluten-free, but I use a wheat-based sourdough starter 
to leaven it. That actually works really well um, for a lot of kinds of, of grains. Um, so that's kind of the idea behind the low gluten um, baking. Now, as far as um, no-knead breads go, is it, uh, is it possible to do a no-knead bread with low or no gluten? Oh, very good question. Yes, and sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you definitely can. And uh, like I said, I, I get asked that all the time at my presentations. Um, I've made s- successful sourdough starters with gluten-free grains. Okay. Um, and and like I said, I've made a, a pretty decent bread using a, a sourdough starter. It amounts to about, proportion-wise, it's roughly about 30% of the okay. bread is, 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 is wheat and the rest of it is gluten-free grains. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, definitely. It's also really important for people to know, and this does not get much attention at all, that there are other things in wheat that people can be sensitive or allergic to besides gluten. Mm-hmm. And gluten has become kind of the handy scapegoat mm-hmm. in recent years. Mm-hmm. And an awful lot of human ailments have been blamed yeah. on gluten. And I think quite unfairly in most cases. Um, and it's also important to know that celiac disease is not an allergy. It's actually an autoimmune reaction that happens. There is a very good blood test that tests that can check for a biomarker. Other than celiac disease, as far as I know, there is still not any definitive test to say, yes, you do or no, you don't actually have any other form of gluten sensitivity or allergy. So what that amounts to is... If you don't have celiac disease, but you say you're allergic to gluten, you're essentially self-diagnosing. Nothing wrong with that. I just really encourage people to, if you think you're sensitive or allergic to gluten or wheat, talk to a medical person about it and get some good advice about it. And don't just rely on the, you know, the scaremongering books Mm -hmm. and blogs and things like that that say, ooh, gluten, bad. You know, everything about wheat is bad. Because it's just, it just isn't true. There's about 40% or so of the world uh, gets most of their daily nutrition from wheat. It's, a, it's been an important food product for many, many, many years. And it hasn't changed recently in spite of what you've read. The wheat that we're eating really hasn't changed that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that we process it has changed. And that makes a difference in how our body absorbs it and digests it. But... Um, but the wheat itself is still a very important food product in our culture. You just listened to a conversation between the friends of Mother Earth News. If you're interested in learning more about what you've heard in this episode, visit MotherEarthNews.com slash podcast for more information and resources. You may also find links from this episode in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and stay up to date through your favorite podcast provider or our website, MotherEarthNews.com slash podcast. Please rate and leave us a review and let us know what you think of the show. Give us a share so that we may continue sharing our friendly conversations with you. If you would like to get in touch, please send your mail to MotherEarthNewsPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for joining us. I'm podcast producer Charlotte Brunin. Our podcast production team includes Haley Casey, Jessica Mitchell, and Robert Riley. Zach Slayton provided our music. The Mother Earth News and Friends podcast is a production of Ogden Publications. Do you enjoy learning from our podcast guest? You may find our podcast friends at our various Mother Earth News fairs. There you may visit their presentations and take a DIY project home from one of our many hands-on workshops and shop with over 300 vendors specializing in self-sufficiency and natural health. I and other members of the Mother Earth News staff enjoy visiting the fairs and meeting our readers. So keep an eye out for us and say hi. 
because we consider you a friend, don't forget to use the link in the podcast for a friendly discount on your tickets. Find out more details and plan your trip to the fair at www.MotherEarthNewsFair.com. I look forward to seeing you there. Until next time, don't forget to love your mother.